message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are glad that you're here. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I would love to get that opportunity after the service today. But if you've got a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And as always, kids, our young disciples, I want you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about a boys' soccer team. A story about a boys' soccer team. Second, be listening for the most common command in the Bible. What's the most common command in all the Bible? And third, on your way home, I want you to tell your parents why you don't need to be afraid of ever losing God's love. Why you don't need to be afraid of ever losing God's love. Well, this is the portion of our service where we open God's Word in hopes of understanding what it says and how it applies to our specific lives. And this fall, we've been engaged in a sermon series considering the Old Testament book of Exodus. In Exodus, it's a story of salvation, a story of rescue, a story of grace, where God intervenes to deliver His people from slavery, to lead them through the desert as they increasingly learn to depend on Him, to bring them to the promised land where they might get about their grand mission of bringing blessing to the nations. In the pages of Exodus, on one hand, we're confronted with our deep need. We're reminded just how helpless we are when it comes to standing against spiritual powers and principalities that seek to bring oppression and death in our lives. And on the other hand, we're invited to witness God's great care and provision and deliverance for His people. How He is on a mission to eradicate evil in this world. Last week, Pastor Ben led us through a consideration of the Passover, where God's people were protected from the angel of death because of the blood of the Lamb that was spread across their doorposts. And he reminded us that our only hope is to find refuge and peace as we're hidden by the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, namely Jesus Christ. And this morning, we pick back up in the Exodus story where Pharaoh finally relents and he sends God's people out of his country to worship Yahweh in the wilderness. And as we pick up our account this morning, the people of God have likely been traveling anywhere from two days to two weeks, and Pharaoh comes to his senses, realizing that he had let a massive portion of his workforce leave the country. He regrets his decision, and we'll see that he decides to pursue God's people to bring them back to slavery, back to oppression, back to forced service. And as we consider this passage, we get the chance to see once again that God cares for and loves his people. And he goes to great lengths to protect them against the power of evil and sin. So to see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-haroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. 
When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, Why is, what is it that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent." Now, skipping to verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder how many of you saw the recent documentary done by National Geographic entitled The Rescue. It recounts the harrowing story of the boys' soccer team trapped deep in a cave in northern Thailand a few years back. This youth soccer team consisting of 12 boys and one coach, they made their way into an underground cave where they became disoriented and lost. With no way to get out and water in the cave beginning to rise, they spend 13 days in complete darkness. Losing hope, probably, when a team of rescuers finally make their way and make contact with the boys. I mean, what must it have been like for those boys to see the first light of the divers? Well, upon finding the team, the rescuers had tough decisions to make on how to extract the boys. There was serious contemplation that they'd have to be left for months due to the rising water in the caves. But because of oxygen depletion that was happening, the rescuers decided that they needed to take immediate action in extracting the boys. Well, it was a massive problem because the cave was made up of intricate tunnels filled with water and none of the boys could swim. And they certainly didn't know how to use diving equipment. 
And so the experts, they were sent down there initially to try and train the boys to swim and use diving equipment. Well, this is going to be required to escape because there are certain stretches of that cave uh, that required the boys to be completely submerged for 45 minutes in very tight, dark tunnels. Well, eventually the rescue team decided that they couldn't wait any longer. They couldn't teach the boys to swim or use the diving equipment. These boys, in complete fear and panic, were basically put to sleep with medication, hooked up to oxygen, attached to a professional diver who would be responsible for keeping the boy calm and controlled through the journey, which was 12 hours round trip for the divers. And to do this required some of the most skilled and accomplished cave divers in the world. They all descended upon Thailand to save these boys and their coach. Well, if you haven't seen the documentary, I would recommend it. It's without a doubt one of the most extraordinary rescues in history. The boys were rightfully full of fear and anxiety as they considered what their rescue would entail. And they were completely dependent and passive in that rescue effort. Now, that's not dissimilar, I think, to the fear and anxiety and dependence that we find with Israel at this point in their history. Remember, Israel had just been brought out of Egypt. They made their way out, men, women, children, livestock. It would have been a massive traveling party. They get a few days away from Egypt, and then Pharaoh realizes what he's done. And he goes to get his workforce back. Pharaoh catches up to the Israelites with his chariots and his army, and now Israel is completely stuck. Between the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other. Think of the overwhelming sense of dread that the Israelites must have been experiencing. They were helpless, hopeless, uncertain. The passage says, greatly afraid. We see their primary response at seeing the Egyptian army in verse 10, where we see they feared greatly. And I think we can relate to the Israelites in this primary response because it's one we're familiar with too. I wonder where you find yourself in a helpless, hopeless, uncertain situation that has the ability to produce deep fear in your heart this morning. Maybe a better way to ask it is, is there any issue you're currently facing that you don't have the resources to address? Where do you find yourself stuck this morning? Are you experiencing anything in your life right now that would require the power of God to fix it? Any problem that would require gospel power? Any issue that would remain hopeless unless God intervened and rescued? It could be a relational breakdown to the point where you can't even be in the same room together with the other person with any peace. It could be a heartbreaking diagnosis that stokes a feeling of helplessness and anxiety in your heart. It could be the unrelenting stress you feel at work. It could be the sadness you feel at lost family members. It could be a marriage hanging on by a thread. It could be doubt, temptation, sin patterns in your life that have complete control over you. And when we experience things that expose our lack of resources and abilities, it almost always produces fear in our hearts, doesn't it? And that fear often leads us to complain and question and doubt like it did with the Israelites in our passage. The Israelites are greatly afraid and it leads them to getting nasty and sarcastic towards Moses. Did you see that? We see them speak in a unified voice in verse 11 where they say, Look at it. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Their words are dripping with sarcasm. You've got to see it. They're at the end of their rope, and now they're going to make Moses pay for the fear that they all feel. There's a certain sense of pride and enlightenment being communicated in their sarcasm. They're saying, Moses, you don't know what you're doing. How could you have done this to us? But in reality, they're just fearful. Their anxiety is expressing itself through fear and sarcasm. And we also see that their fear produces, get this, a desire to retreat to that which is comfortable, which was slavery, captivity, abuse. All of these things are objectively wrong and horrible and evil, but these things were comfortable to the Israelites. And in their fear, they wanted to go back to what was destroying them. Now, how much are we just like them? How often do we retreat to that which is comfortable in the midst of our fear and anxiety? And isn't it ironic and heartbreaking that the things that bring comfort can oftentimes be the very things that destroy and captivate us? Substances, materialism, power, control, sex, beauty. In the midst of discomfort, we seek to numb ourselves, to take the anxiety away, to calm our fears. Isn't it heartbreaking that Israel would rather go back to slavery and bondage than press forward in faithfulness and risk and dependence on God? It's as if they're thinking wistfully and nostalgically about Egypt, where they were slaves, thinking those were the good old days. It's it's crazy, but it's what fear does to people. That's what we see from Israel in our passage. And we can certainly resonate with their experience in so many ways. Now, let's turn to see exactly why they found themselves in the situation they were and what the Lord was trying to cultivate in their hearts. What we learned from this passage, the big idea I want us to consider this morning, the main point, is that God regularly leads His people to places of utter dependence, to places where the lack of our resources and lack of strength is completely exposed, to places where we have nothing but God. And when we have nothing but God, he wants us to know that it's enough. He wants to cultivate a deeper dependence on him, to invite us to abide in him when we feel most fearful and powerless. But you don't need to be told that our culture continually pushes against this kind of complete dependence, doesn't it? Yet throughout the scriptures, we see just how dependent we're meant to be. In fact, we see in John chapter 15 that Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. And boy, do we have a hard time believing that. We're dependent on God. It's the way you were created. And as we grow in dependence on God through our life, God wants us to know that he's enough. And we see that in this story. Remember, Israel had recently left Egypt. They had been set free from their bondage and oppression. And after a few days, like we said, Pharaoh realizes that he lost his workforce. His heart grows stubborn once again, which is his fault. And he decides to pursue God's people so that he might heal his bruised ego and bring Israel back to their forced labor. And what we see in our passage is that God shows up. While his people are at their most vulnerable, when they've grown most fearful, when they're most anxious, God shows up in a powerful way and he brings miraculous deliverance. 
Now, we don't find ourselves in the same situation that Israel did as they're caught between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. But we do often find ourselves in what we might call tough spots. And God has promised to always show up. But this doesn't necessarily mean that he comes when or how we want him to. But he always does show up. God shows up in big ways and small ways. He shows up for us individually and corporately. And here in between uh, an overflowing river and the most powerful army on the planet, we see God show up in power. Now remember, God and Pharaoh, they have been in what we might be, des- might be described as a chess match up until now. They've been going a bit back and forth, and now God is about to declare checkmate on Pharaoh. This is where it ends. This is where God's power is going to be manifest. His people are going to receive grace. After all those years and all that suffering, God is finally going to act. You've got to think the Israelites would have liked him to act sooner and maybe even act in a different way, but they don't get that. They get something even better, something that they might not be able to understand. God miraculously brings his people through the Red Sea as they walk on dry ground. And as the Egyptian army pursues them, the water washes over them and destroys the most powerful army on the planet. And remember, Pharaoh represents more than himself in this story. He represents the forces of evil in this world, the powers that are set against God and his ways. He represents the principalities of evil and oppression. And what we see from this passage is that God is a warrior against evil. He's on a war path against sin and evil then and now. The story testifies to God's authority and power over the evil one, the one that we don't speak of very much anymore since we're so enlightened now, right? Since we've lost a sense of wonder and awe at what can't be measured, we've lost a sense of Satan and the spiritual powers and forces of darkness. After all, we're not so naive that we would ever speak of the devil, are we? It was Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, who was a physician before he entered into ministry, once said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. There is such a thing as a cosmic spiritual evil in this world, and Pharaoh represents that reality. And what we see in this passage is that God is a warrior against spiritual evil, and that should encourage us this morning because it means he's in the midst of setting us free from the effects of evil even as we speak. God owns his people, and he's decided it's time for redemption for them at this point in the story, time to buy his people back. So God puts his people in an impossible situation, a helpless situation, so that they know for certain that their rescue comes from God. And to make the point crystal clear, look at what Moses says in verses 13 and 14, which I think are the two most important verses in this passage. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent or you only have to be still. Fear not. Don't be afraid. It's actually the most frequent command that we find in the Scriptures. And I wonder, does that surprise you? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Most common command. The most common command is not be good, be holy, don't sin, don't be immoral. 
Now, the most frequent command in all the Bible used well over 300 times in the Scriptures is do not be afraid, fear not. And one pastor puts his finger on how hard it is to heed this command, this invitation, when he says this, the irony of this surprising command is that though it's what we all really want to hear, we have as much difficulty, if not more, in obeying this command as any other. We all cherish fear so closely that we find we can't shed it even when we're told to do so. We are really swimming upstream here if we're going to heed this invitation to fear not, aren't we? Because so many things in our life throughout the course of our day are trying to make us afraid. You think of the 24-hour entertainment news media. You think of politicians and cultural influencers. You think of Twitter and Facebook and Truth Social. You think of some popular pastors and their blogs and videos. All seeking to cultivate more fear and anxiety in your life. Seeking you to get worked up. And it's the, it is the complete opposite of what Jesus wants for you. I can say that with full authority of the Scriptures. Jesus does not want you to fear. And if we're honest, I think we'd admit that we have a hard time with Jesus looking at us and saying that. Fear not. Don't be afraid. We may even be tempted to think Jesus is being naive. He's not being realistic. He doesn't really know how bad it's gotten out there. But in a very real sense, through the Holy Spirit speaking to us right now through the Scriptures, the command is still the same today as it was back in the first century when Jesus walked the earth. Back in the time of the Exodus, fear not, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid in your sickness. Don't be afraid in your relational brokenness. Don't be afraid in your children walking away from the Lord in the midst of cultural decay. Don't be afraid of your stress in your job or financial uncertainty. Do not be afraid. Instead, in this passage, Moses invites us to stand firm, to wait, to watch, to be silent and still. Now, can you imagine what it's like or would have been like to stand still against the greatest army in the world as they bear down on you? Every instinct in you is telling you to either fight or flee. And Moses says, stand firm, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent or be still. And if we're going to do this, then we've got to recognize that the Lord fighting for us often looks very differently than we expect in both timing and outcome. God doesn't always work on our timetable, and His solutions often look very different than the ones that we would draw up ourselves. And there are no promises in the Scripture that your life is going to be perfect, that you will not struggle. Sin and evil still play a very a big role in our lives in this world, this side of resurrection. But there is comfort in realizing that we are not in control and responsible for figuring everything out. We have one who promises to fight for us, one who puts us in places of dependence so that we might rely completely on his deliverance, one who has made promises to you to care for you and to do you good. In this passage, God is inviting you to a deeper dependence on Him, even through the difficult seasons and events in your life. And if you have a hard time embracing that invitation, maybe a clarifying question would help here. What's the worst thing that could happen in your life? What's the worst thing that could happen in your life? I wonder how you would answer that question. I could answer the question in so many ways. The worst thing would be getting cancer. 
The worst thing would be losing a loved one. The worst thing would be having to move. The worst thing would be watching my kids walk away from the Lord. Or the worst thing would be losing my reputation. Or the worst thing would not being able to make ends meet. Those are the type of answers that immediately come to mind when I think of the worst thing that could happen. You know what answer doesn't immediately come to mind, at least personally? Maybe it does for you. I hope it does. The worst thing that could happen to me is being separated from the love of God. The worst thing that could happen to me is being separated from the love of God in Christ. And that's an answer that puts things in perspective. If you believe that, that the worst thing that could ever happen is losing God's love, then you can take verse 14 to the bank because it'll never happen. If we believed that, then we could rest in verse 14, even in the midst of cancer or relational breakdown or disappointment or hardship or suffering, because you can know that nothing will separate you from the love of God and Christ, which is the most valuable thing we possess. Which It takes a lifetime to live into that. And because of this, we can follow Jesus in this world without fear by remaining dependent on him to fight for us, knowing that the worst thing that could ever happen to us won't. And you know how we can be so certain that the worst thing will never happen to us? Why we never have to worry about being separated from the love of God? Well, it's because the worst thing happened to Jesus. The worst thing will never happen to us because it did happen to him. On the cross, Jesus suffered God's wrath against evil and sin. He was plunged, you might say, into the chaos of the waters of judgment so that you and I might walk through on dry ground. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus actually says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. In the Exodus, God's people cross over from what was certain death to life, all because of God's provision, all because God was fighting for them. And in much the same way in Jesus, if you are in him this morning, you have crossed over from death to life. And when the Israelites saw God deliver them, what does it say in the passage? They put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And how much more should we, when we see our deliverance in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, put our trust in God by putting our trust in Jesus, his servant? God makes a way out through Jesus. He delivers his people through Jesus. And because of that, you are invited to fear not and be still. God is going to fight for you. And one day soon, you will experience the victory fully and finally. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we are thankful for your word that brings such encouragement to our lives on a daily basis. Lord, we are struggling through so many things this morning And we know, Lord, that you are aware of them more acutely than we are aware of them ourselves. And we pray that you would help us to set our gaze upon you in the way that you've promised to fight for us. We pray that we would let go of fear and engage more dependence and trust as we think about walking with you. We just thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives and pray that you would keep us dependent this week. In Jesus' name, amen.